do we idealize perfect happiness in the West and confuse happiness and sadness and normal human reactions with depression? Oh, wow. Yeah. So the happiness topic, that's the topic. Hey, eh? so no matter who you ask, why is the why is the explanation for what is happiness different? Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. That was Darshan Pindaraya. He's my guest coming up on this episode. Darshan is a psychologist based in London. He trained as a monk, then became a psychologist full-time and a therapist. And we'll be talking about what is happiness. Do we have an inflated and irrational view of happiness in the West today? We'll talk about stress, the rise in mental disorders in our society, and what are the triggers today for this soaring rate of mental illness? Could it have something to do with social media? We'll talk about that and lots more before Darshan Pindaraya. We have my weekly episode of Future Shock 2.0 with workforce trends expert Ira Wolf. Here he's talking about Chat GPT. You might have heard about it already. If you haven't, stay tuned. Chat GPT stands for Generative Pre Trained Transformer. It was launched in November and it is shaking up the tech industry and it may well shake up society and our culture. Here's Ira Wolf. John, thanks again for having me back on Future Shock 2.0. We are only in the first few weeks of 2023 and already the future seems to have met the present. Or as I wrote about in my book about Googleization, science fiction has met reality. Your listeners have probably been reading or hearing about something called ChatGPT, but they might not be sure exactly what it is. For others, well, what can I say? Star Wars just met the Twilight Zone. So let's start with a few basics. What is ChatGPT? So here's one description I pulled off the internet. To put it quite simply, ChatGPT is AI or artificial intelligence. It is what many call language machine. It uses statistics, reinforcement learning, supervised learning to index words, phrases, and sentences. While it has no real intelligence, it doesn't know what a word means, but it knows how it is used. It can very effectively answer questions, write articles, summarize information, and more. That's not bad, but I wondered what GPT would have to say about ChatGPT. So I asked it. It would be like asking a friend what they did for a living. So I asked my new friend, ChatGPT, what is ChatGPT? Its response, ChatGPT is a language generation model developed by OpenAI. It's a type of artificial intelligence technology that's trained to understand and generate text in a way that mimics human writing and speech. ChatGPT is based on a deep learning architecture called a transformer and blah, 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 blah. Now, I suspect if I continued with that response from ChatGPT, it would have led to a lot of listeners fast forwarding past the rest of the segment as their eyes glassed over and their ears went numb, which got me thinking. John, you might remember the days when as a kid, we used to stay on board. Our parents told us to find something to do. We said, like what? And then we ran off into the other room. Well, now kids can ask ChatGPT and it will come up with something. So I asked it again to explain ChatGPT in a way that a five-year-old might understand. Honestly, the answers were really pretty good. Imagine if you can ask your toys or stuffed animals anything, 
and they would reply back to you. ChatGPT is a way to have conversations with computers, just like you might have with your friends. Imagine asking ChatGPT lots of questions such as, tell me a story, or what should we do today? ChatGPT gave some really interesting and good answers, including responses to questions that I asked, like, why won't anybody play with me? Why am I bored? And then it told me a fantasy story, it created puzzles to solve, and played a few guessing games. Now, as you can imagine, I wasn't done yet. So I decided to ask it to explain ChatGPT to my 99-year-old mother. I wonder how it might have responded differently. Here's its response. ChatGPT is a computer program that can understand and generate text like a human. It's like having an aide or a companion that can help you with writing, but ChatGPT is not a person, it's a computer. It can even complete sentences and paragraphs for you or rewrite them in different tones. It's like having a pen pal, but instead of a person, it's a computer program that uses advanced algorithms. What got me thinking, think about the possibilities for older adults who are lonely, but then again, I'm not sure my mother would know exactly to do with an algorithm. So ChatGPT might need a little tweaking there, but we can always go back to the response we, we got about the five-year-old, which is probably the safer bet considering the newness of ChatGPT. For me, ChatGPT feels like the first time almost 40 years ago that I heard that awful but familiar crackling of the computer trying to connect to this thing called the internet. Where the first time I was able to search the internet using browsers like Mosaic and Netscape, then interfaces like AOL. We heard about all the threats and the dangers of the internet, but for many of us, it felt that it opened a whole new world of possibilities and opportunities. And then it became mainstream. I suspect in the not-too-near future, we'll have a difficult time remembering life without ChatGPT, just like billions of people do not know a life without the internet and Google. Regardless of which side you fall on, opportunity or dystopia, there is one thing for certain. The toothpaste is already out of the tube on AI and ChatGPT. And like most technologies, it's best we try to understand it and figure out how to use it. I have no doubt that you and me We'll be digging deeper into the future shock of ChatGPT and AI in upcoming segments. So I hope everybody will stay tuned and listen to Future Shock 2.0. Thank you, Ira Wolf, for that fascinating take on ChatGPT. We'll have more from Ira next week. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a top five global thought leader in his field, a public speaker, a labor force trends expert and host of the fabulous Geeks, Geezers and Googleization podcast. Speaking of podcasts, make sure you tune in every week to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner the latest episode up there on apple google spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast is simply fascinating we talk about the latest job numbers in the united states they came in at 517,000 jobs created in the united states and reported for january unemployment is down to 3.4 percent called dick Beauvais. 
one big skeptic he'll explain he'll crunch the numbers he thinks they're widely off the mark and matt van alstein um will have his own take he um feels the numbers hold up on the metrics used so you won't want to miss the latest episode of odian capital conversations we'll get to my interview in a moment with darshan pindaraya on mental health and what is happiness i'm your host john aiden byrne we keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people hi i'm danica patrick watching my nieces grow play and learn is amazing but not every child gets to be carefree one in six kids in the u.s are hungry this breaks my heart and it's something that feeding america is working to change Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is a remarkable individual in London. He's Darshan Pindaraya. He's a psychologist. He trained to be a monk. We're talking about happiness mental disorders the soaring rate of stress in our society and what may be behind that and of course you can watch and listen to this podcast up on my youtube channel dig life deep i'm your host john aiden byrne hey yeah it's good to good to be here john yeah, you're in London today. I'm in the New York, New Jersey area. So oh. different sides of the Atlantic. And you told me before we went on the air, it's quite cold in London. Oh yeah, right now it's uh, last week we had a uh, we had a whole ice over. So yeah, everywhere you walk, uh, you're walking on ice. But it's getting warmer, so we're on two degrees today. Spring will be coming soon, uh, another month or two. So with that to look forward to. But we can enjoy the winter too. There's a lot of wonder and beauty about the winter we shouldn't forget. Um, We're here to talk about mental health, happiness, psychology, the well-being of humanity. And you're a psychologist. You're a counsellor. You're going to tell us about that. You have an interesting take on it. I, I guess in part because of your background. Your parents are from India. It seems like you've embraced some of the culture from that part of the globe. We'll get into that. But you trained to be a monk for nine months. That was intriguing. Um, tell us about that first. Now, fair enough. So uh, what happens is uh, I was I had a whole aim to become an IT uh, engineer in the future. So Indian parents, they thought, yeah, IT, safe bet, let's do IT. I went to work experience in IT and I hated it. I couldn't sit in one place that I couldn't sit behind a computer and that year just happened to be the year my family had a trip to India so went out to India uh there's something called an ashram a hermitage where all the monks where that's where they live they, they do yoga went there and just got so inspired by everything there so got inspired to change my career and <coughs> go into psychology uh, I'm a uh, I'm a psychology trainer out there uh, he's a yogi. He told me, "You go off, you do your degree, uh, you study psychology, then you come back to, then you come back to us, and we'll see, we'll see what the differences are. We'll see what you guys learn, and if it's as good as what we know, that type of thing." So yeah, I, I studied hard after I just hit the books, uh, extra time in the library, studied psychology five years, and then it was always in the back of my mind. After this, go to India, train up. Go to India, train up. 
and then yeah, it got it was five years up. I went to India. I thought I had all the knowledge that I needed to done the whole degree. Had had the had the ego essentially. And uh, then, oh boy, these these guys are tough out there. So the yogis, they the level to which they study, the web, the level to which they memorize a lot of these concepts, the ability to ask questions and decipher questions. Oh yes, yeah, so I spent spent a lot of time training up, and it all revolves around self mastery. Can you can you focus down your thinking? Do you know how to speed it up, slow it down? Do you know how to stay in a good state? Do you know how to be unaffected by the influence of externals? So yeah, all of that. Training up and yeah, done the yoga, got myself healthy again, uh, and yeah, that's the, that's the whole side of things when it comes to being a monk, essentially. Yeah, and when I think of a monk, I always think of isolation, living uh, away from big cities, stuck in a cave, even. <laughs> so yeah, there's uh, there's an element of that, but what happens is in terms of these monks, they work for the they work for the institution that they're part of. So the they're all charity institutions. They'll go around. They'll do social reform work. They'll help. They'll help other uh, poorer areas in India. They'll you know, go out and do institutional work. But the center of it, it's heavily meditation based. Yeah. So there's uh, when you're in training, you're heavily isolated. Yeah. You don't get to talk to anyone. There's no phone. No no, no connection out there. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you got to. Some people call it boredom, and some people call it the most exciting fun, exciting thing ever. So I thought. I thought it was boring uh, when I started, and then it's like, oh yes, I get to be alone today, and then you just you come alive, no distractions, no phone, no TV, no no one to gossip with. It's just you're just with yourself, and it's like, oh wow, yeah, today's going to be a good day. So isolation—that's a very interesting thought because um, a lot of the world's religions have that in common: isolation, meditation, and because we're talking about mental health. The ideal of good mental health, I assume, is happiness. And some of the happiest people I have met in my lifetime are with different religious groups. I've met nuns who live as hermits or live a life uh, cloistered. Large parts of their day are spent praying hours and hours and monks that you described there and and catholic monks so there's got to be something going on there that can explain what you're doing now and why you got to doing what you're doing now mental health meditation so walk us through all of that no that that's uh yeah that's interesting yeah uh, you mentioned uh some of the happiest people you know a lot of the happiest people we know uh, they're not doing. They, they might be doing the traditional uh, type of things about going to work, come back home, uh, that type of thing. But the happiest people, they've they've got something configured differently in their mind. So I became fascinated by that. Why is these people? Why their mind is is so so configured to to be really really happy within themselves? I, I know how to be happy externally uh, within a certain environment. But do I know how to be happy just inside my own body? Uh, right now, uh, the easiest example is when you go to a hospital, you're waiting in a line or if you're waiting in traffic, you're spending time with yourself. Why are you getting bored? So everyone gets bored when they are alone, when they're waiting for something. But why are you getting bored if you're spending time with yourself? That means you are a boring person, if uh, if that's what we're trying to say. But I'm, <laughs> uh, I, I had this, uh, the yogis used to question me heavy. And then it's, uh, 
why you do what you do. So this is this is why if we don't ask this these questions, we're never going to realize. We just go. There's something called mass cultural hypnosis, going along, going along with the crowd, and not needing to ask why, not needing to change the direction, not needing to even speculate what other possibilities there are. Uh, as soon as I've done that, when when you get a bit of an outside view on my own life, then you start realizing there's a lot of dependencies that I live by. I, I'm dependent on uh, making sure I get the news. I'm, making, I'm dependent on school, career, work, uh, a lot of tiny stimulants. And then, yeah, finding, being, reducing the things that we're dependent on, that equals a lot of happiness after. So, uh, that was the that was the whole equation that I had to get my head around. I was like, oh, what? So just being less dependent on external factors makes me happy. Uh, I thought I should be chasing <laughs> these external dependencies to be happy. So that's uh, that's why that's why we go by this whole isolation. If you could be happy in isolation, you could be happy anywhere, essentially. Yeah, you, you brought up a lot of things there. You mentioned mass cultural hypnosis. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. But <laughs> in addition to that isolation and ending up in a some kind of a state of nirvana um and not being bored with your own company many of these religious people also do great acts of charity so mm -hmm. they go hand in glove um and it's almost like the perfect situation it's not for everybody and i'm not here to propose it i'm just looking for your interpretation of that now, fair enough, yeah, the, the whole con concept of serving. So technically, we we go earn money, but uh, if that money had a bigger purpose in our life, so to inspire our own families, to inspire our communities, to inspire uh, the whole concept of charity given to others, now even the act of earning money becomes a charitable cause, a charitable motive. Now, your motive starts to become bigger than you. Yeah? Your living force starts to be for more than just you, this little small bubble. Then if something affects you, it's not just affecting you, it's affecting, it has to be big enough to affect your bigger motive. So this is where we say uh, you can reduce your motive or you can make it as big as possible. Now making it as big as possible, it's uh, it comes with a it comes with a blessing, it comes with a charge, it comes with a a sense of uh, a sense of uh, gratitude uh, and really and truly if you could start absorbing everyone else's happiness, you're not even going to have to try to find your own happiness. It's just, it's just coming, coming to you via the people that you're serving. My guest is Darshan Pindaraya. He's based in London. He's a psychologist and therapist. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. So you're a psychologist. You're based in London. That's a huge city like New York City, cosmopolitan. Yep. Um, so... You see a lot of people in your clinic with yep. depression um, who have suffered maybe panic attacks, nervous disorders, uh, addictions, um, alcoholism. It runs the gamut, I'm sure. Yeah. Tell us about your practice and what you're seeing out there. Okay, so yeah, London really busy, and lockdown was when I when things boomed for my side of things. So a lot of people uh, it. It proves that we have been running away from our own problems, our own mental problems. When we had to sit with them, when we had to quiet down and reduce the externals, a lot of things just came to light. Now, these things could have been not happy with how things were in my childhood, not happy with the current relationships, not interested in the things that I thought I was really interested in. So all of those, once they start coming to light, dealing with them, 
it starts to become the default. You have to start dealing with all these things that were buried. Now, burying things is easy in a, in a busy place. Why right? you got so many external stimulants that you never have to deal with what's going on inside. And uh, let's say uh, a bit more to the countryside, those type of people, they have the more longer term uh, issues, if, if I may say. But what we're doing is every time we suppress all these issues, one day or another, when it comes to dealing with it, are we strong enough to even deal with it? So a lot of the mental weaknesses have crept into our life. Mental weaknesses such as blame, such as uh, not having enough control of our own thought process, uh, and mental weaknesses as uh, the little hideaways. So uh, jumping in onto the alcohol, going to the parties, uh, cheating on the family, this, this and that. So they're all, they're all the little breakaways. If you go down that route, leads to more issues, more suppressing, more suppressing. And uh, everyone's got this little package in them that they've suppressed so much that they can't even touch that package anymore. So they have to live a certain way to make sure they don't go anywhere near that sensitive spot that's inside of them. Well, we, we did hear all these reports of um, more mental illness during COVID. There was, in America, an astronomical increase in caseloads, shocking cases, uh, an increase in drug abuse and suicide, I'm sure. So are you saying that um, COVID was the trigger and that these people who were suffering mental illness during COVID, uh, they, they had these underlying symptoms already and COVID brought it to the fore? Yeah, so imagine just the change triggered it. So external change triggered an internal bomb, essentially. Hmm. Yeah. So what was what was to say uh, this person was able was ever going to be able to handle? In perspective, some things about COVID should have helped people with mental uh, mental fatigue going on, because they had more time to themselves, they had more time with the family, etc. But because they weren't ready for that change, because of the whole weakening process that was happening prior to this, everything just came in one go, and the weight that people were they were going through so much without the support. So, yeah, that's uh, uh, we can't expect we can't expect people that have had a mental illness buried amongst them uh, to be able to handle it without support as well. So, in COVID, the seriousness was a lot higher than on a normal day to day. There's all kinds of theories and practical information and studies about mental health today in the West, and if you take those studies on face value we've seen an astonishing increase in mental health issues um, mental health breakdowns psychological disorders dysfunctions um why is that i mean i guess the answers are in part uh easy to understand but i'd like to hear your take on us now fair enough so uh, you've got external support factors now, back in the days, uh, yes, communication. So your family and your cousins and pretty much your whole community used to live local. So all your support structures were pretty local. And you would just go with the tide of expectations given by your family, your, your local culture and your local norm. Now, if you look at today, we are heavily individual based. Even our support structures are friends that we don't know if we're going to keep for a long time or not. Our family isn't as big of a support structure in many cases. Now, you don't have the support structure. So one side, the support structure is gone. And then the other side is the negatives where the cross comparison culture has gone through the roof. So we're comparing ourselves on 
a drastic basis. So before I would just be compared to one of my cousins, but right now on social media, I'll be compared to I'll be compared to hundreds of people an hour. That type of thing. So cross comparison culture. So all of a sudden, you don't know what standard uh, you want to conform to, and yeah, your support structures are down. So it's uh, and the biggest thing is we don't even talk about these topics. <laughs> we don't talk about mental health triggers. We don't talk about how to uh, reduce burnout. We don't talk about mental health fatigue. And uh, yeah, especially if uh, if you've run into addiction phobias, uh, we don't talk about these type of things and and the recovery process on it. There's a certain irony too, you know, in the age of social media and people friending friends on Facebook. <laughs> um, we have so much social isolation. Um, and then, of course, we've mass consumerism, the frenetic pace of living today, the various financial stresses on people, the expectations and the expectations even some parents put on their kids to succeed. Oh, exactly. That is, uh, that's crazy. It's, uh, uh, if you think about anxiety for teenagers, why would uh, someone older than older than fifty or sixty years old they would think why would a teenager have such anxiety? Because from their days it was there was a bit more routine living. Now the level of anxiety teenagers could face uh, today and teenagers are generally facing today it's unheard of. Now where could all of that pressure come from? It couldn't. It's not just coming from the household anymore. It's coming from pretty much nearly everywhere else apart from the household and uh yeah if you if you start living with a mental weakness from the age from ages below 13 it's uh you kind of adapt it as a way of life going forward for the rest of your life if you don't get the help that you need it starts they say anxiety takes seven years to clear on your own but with a therapist it could take between seven to 30 minutes to clear a long-term anxiety issue so it's uh yeah it's one of those man people's they'll just live with it you just carried on living with these little issues that have crept in from a young age and just carried on living with it until one day, if the family situation changes, something like COVID comes along, all of a sudden brings everything everything to light. So you're saying a therapist can talk that person out of their anxiety if it's done right. Um, in the West, we have all this reported cases of um, anxiety and mental disorders and then you go to Eastern cultures or more traditional cultures, we hear less about that, which is always interesting and fascinating to me. It's almost like in the West or in maybe less developed societies, they're happier and they have, they're dealing less with it, or maybe it's just not reported. But my question really is, do we idealize perfect happiness in the West and confuse happiness and sadness and normal human reactions with depression. Oh wow, yeah. So the happiness topic—that's the topic, hey. So no matter who you ask, why is the why is the explanation for what is happiness different? So it's uh, maybe it's, we're just not talking about it enough. So otherwise, everyone would have had, everyone would have got a idea of what is happiness. Now, depression, we know, is just not happy, but we don't know what happy is yet. So no matter who asks, they will say something along the lines of a hope, a package of hope. So, oh yeah, happiness is me driving my car, enjoying this, enjoying a family, having having this connection, that connection. Yeah, they'll package up a vision, essentially. So that would that would be happiness. Now in the East, happiness is a state. If you're actually happy, I can't I can't swear at you or annoy you in traffic, break that happiness. 
Why? Because happiness is your natural state. So your natural state is your level of happiness. So that's that's the whole Eastern perspective. Now the Western perspective is a bit of the element of chasing happiness. So it's uh, it's uh, it's crazy, like because it's all is such a vague term now. Happiness yeah. has become so vague. Uh, yeah. Everyone's everyone's perception of it, everyone's uh, diehard def- definition, it's uh, it's too questionable. So what we do with depression is we make you stop doing stuff that's making you sad and we start making you do stuff that's making you fulfilled. Why? Because when you're fulfilled, you're not going to question what's making you sad because you're fulfilled now. So essentially what we're doing is telling them not to be sad. Yeah. So uh, it's it's become a bit too much of a pattern. You can see it on uh, the marketing companies. What are they doing? They're using clickbait to make you feel that something's going to make you happier. Something's going to make you richer, therefore make you happier. Something's uh, buy this and you'll feel happier. Uh, all of these type of things is selling you the happiness. So it's uh, it's contradictory, but like I said, it's uh, this is kind of the environment we've we've conjured up for ourselves. Fascinating. That's why I think we sometimes have to shut off social media, go into the countryside, go hiking for a couple of days, and get your head straightened out. Okay. But we do idealize this in the West in the sense that every billboard advertising you pick up, turn on TV and thank every they're promoting products or selling products. Everybody has a huge smile on their face and 24 seven. That's not the reality in any of our lives. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the advertising. Uh, we complain that these adver- advertisers are manipulating us, but we need to really ask why are we that open to manipulation in the first place? Why is it that easy to manipulate us? Have we not have we not thought about what we want to be doing with our life and our minds to such an extent that a billboard or an advertisement can sell us a dream, essentially? No, that that's that's a good that's a good point because um in my experience it's those who have the strongest moral values in our society are the ones that can resist um those influences and those stimuli because we live in a sort of an age of relativism anything goes and where people are not grounded in some kind of a moral yeah yeah by a moral foundation there they can be swayed and influenced by those marketing persuaders out there no that's that's a big thing and then we also find that People, they might be grounded in a certain way, but mass culture has told them to be different. So they, they never end up finding themselves and they end up having to try to find themselves in short-term stimuluses everywhere else. So do this and you'll be happy, do that, you'll be happy. You start, it might be happy on the surface, but then you never actually end up finding yourself. I went on your website and I was reading some of your blogs. They were really interesting and they were done in a um, plain spoken kind of a way. You didn't um, get into arcane psychology yeah. speak. I, you know, the layman could understand it. And there was one interesting concept you described, the, the role of comedy, if you will, um, when people are going through some kind of a trauma and you're trying to get them to maybe talk to a therapist or whatever you you talk about introducing have them watch comedy so yeah that's a that's a big thing so uh people that have uh, so uh, let's say husbands and wives that have been through uh, abusive relationship your body can actually forget how to laugh again because you've <laughs> you've been yeah it's it's crazy it's, it's actually uh, funny <laughs> I've, uh, 
<laughs> I've seen people that have lost their laugh. They've, uh, they don't laugh. Uh, no, no sense of humor. That is in they can smile along with something, but they can't generate the bodily function of a laugh. Why? Because they've been that depressed and that that burdened with so much stress for a short period of time that their body has literally they can't. You know, uh, we laugh uncontrollably. It'll just come. It'll just come to us naturally. Some people have actually lost the ability to laugh, and it's uh, if you think about that's the that's the extreme. But if you just think about it on a uh, on a more subtle level, if we laugh, if we're laughing, we're doing the opposite of crying. So that's the two opposites. You are laughing or you're crying. Uh, if you do both of them long enough, it will turn into one emotion where it will just be your deep state of happiness or 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 your deep state of sadness, whichever way. So it's the body as a physical function. If you start doing these physical things that are, that are linked to happiness, your body actually generates those type of chemicals, and so you're good to go. There's a movie called Apocalypse Now. Uh, Martin Sheen is in it, and it's reported, and he's written about it himself, that during the film of Apocalypse Now, which is a pretty, I don't know how to characterize it, but <laughs> there's a lot of blood and guts and shooting and madness in it. I think it replicates the Vietnam War. I don't know. I'm not an expert on it, and I'm not a movie critic by any means. But anyways, um, during the shooting of the movie, and Martin Sheen was in it, he had a, a essentially a nervous breakdown because uh, of the stress, the emotional stress of it, maybe the physical stress. And one of the things he said that got him back on the road to recovery was watching funny movies on the t on TV. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a must. To be honest, uh, if you think about a time before TV, time before phones, uh, you could also for the the history of when black people were in slavery in the evenings they used to meet up together and through social connection of each other's company. That's when laughter used to be generated. Now, imagine how powerful laughter would have to be to to literally wipe away all the negativity of the day and be able to respawn that energy back into someone. So laughter, essentially, if someone isn't laughing enough, that that's that's an alarm, essentially. You have to make sure that that gets sorted. So whether you have to force, force the laughter, whether you have to throw in social situations, but the body should be generating that emotion. And if you, some people got a habit of getting angry, so that anger builds up from 10 different situations and comes out in one go. If you introduce laughter to that, they don't need to use anger to diffuse that energy anymore. Um, you have a statistic on your website that 35% of the population have had some kind of a panic attack. Yep. Um, is, that, is that a Western statistic? The, that was a UK, UK stat. For panic attacks, uh, that's at one point in the life. I think the I think there was a uh, there was a there was a more confined uh, step per yearly for yearly uh, rate. But panic attacks have become a lot more common as well. And panic attacks, and the thing is, something mentally can affect the body the body physically. Now we fail to realize that relationship between the mental and the physical, and therefore we're happy to abuse ourselves mentally and not realize that actually physically this is taking a huge burden on us, and it could go to the most extreme extent of having an attack. Amazing, really, um, when you think about that. You think about man during the cave age facing so much imminent threat from all kinds of raw nature around him um there was nobody there 
tabulating <laughs> level of mental health at that stage. Now, fair enough. Uh, yeah, in extreme parts of the world, we could we could see a bit of that happening. I've, I was in the Himalayas. I saw I saw people that just live and in one mountain to themselves. They've got a house on the mountain, and the rest of the mountain is this type of thing. So tigers, any other animals can live there fine as well. It's it's that concept that your body will adapt to whatever you make it adapt to, but the adapting part happens mentally. So we are adapting ourselves for high social pressure. We're adapting ourselves for, for various other forms of stress from work. And our body is getting tighter because of that. Our bodies are, are not as flexible, are not free, are getting tired a lot faster. So it's uh, our bodies are definitely taking, taking the hit. What's your view on the role of medication with mental health? So uh, medication doesn't fix the thought process. Medication fix fixes the supply of of energy going towards a thought process. So now, if someone if someone is out going on a rampage uh, when it comes to uh, maybe hitting their spouse at home or uh, really going going into a behavior m- mismatch, we would say get the chemicals involved until someone can help them realign the thought process. But the bottom line is always going to be realign the thought process use medication to help you realign the thought process, you could use medication to numb down the, the amount of uh, amount of energy going to the mind. You could use uh, medication to increase maybe the happy cells going on. So the whole dopamine supply, uh, get the whole serotonin going. You could use chemicals to do that. But essentially, the bottom line is if you realign your thinking, then uh, then there's a long-term uh, solution of it. Otherwise, yeah, you can't you can't depend on medication for too long. Because there are a lot of experts out there who say that there's way over prescription of medications. It's, it's, it's way overdone. Crazy, crazy high. Yeah, they sold. I believe they sold more antidepressants than paracetamol than aspirins last year. That's extraordinary. No, so, it's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, and they're expensive. They don't they don't come cheap either. Yeah, it's quite 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 distressing and. The other issue we're grappling with on this side of the water um, in the United States is a fentanyl crisis. Drug, there's a massive drug epidemic throughout America, especially in the heartland. And in many, in many of these communities, they're economically depressed, however you define that. I mean, economic depression today is not what it was maybe 50 years ago. But regardless... There's a soullessness in some of these communities. There's a lack of purpose. Um, people don't feel they have a reason to get up in the morning, I guess, walking aimlessly from one day to the next. But there's a drug epidemic. I mean, how sad is that? So with drugs, there's a lot of the time you've got people that just take drugs for themselves type of thing. And then you've got the drug culture that's attached to taking the drugs. Now, I believe in America, there's there's a lot with this whole concept of drug culture. Yeah, there might be might be social circles attached to that drug culture. There might be profits, etc., attached to taking that drug. Now, that in itself, that's a social issue. Then you've got a psychological issue with the actual addiction to the drug. So tackling that, that's one thing. And then the whole social culture, that's 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 uh, well, that's growing. They're going to recruit more people. They're going to want to suck more people into that social culture of taking the drugs. Uh, fighting that, you've got the educated side of things and you've got the non-educated approach. So it's about how you approach uh, the big burner of society, which is the social culture around drugs. 
Give us a quick uh, summary or a profile of your clients, patients that you see. Okay, so every psychology will tell you majority of the clients come to us because they're just struggling to live at the moment. They're struggling just with standard life. Uh, if we find that out, we make sure that the client knows that the, the, the scale of the issue is just to do with the formalities of life. Now, once the formalities of life, if we know they're sorted, if you're still struggling with a mental health issue, that's when we dive in to say why this mental health issue uh, issue exists and how are we going to use this pattern of your thinking? Your your thinking has a pattern to it. How are we going to use this pattern to better help you achieve any goals? Now, a lot of people, they don't come to me with goals. They've been so sucked out of the ambition, the ambitious aspects of life that they don't have, they don't have that will to live. So all of these things we get... Uh, we have to get them up and running. And when it comes to the mind, that's where we jump in. So my job is to jump in. Anything to do with the mind, I have to make sure that it's going to help you rather than work against you. And if you find your mind is working against you and you want to do all these big things, oh yeah, that's 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 calling for depression to come your way. And if you find your mind is working against you and you've got challenges in there, that's, that's going to build your anxiety and start layering up your anxiety as well. And by the time you get to someone like me, because you're not aware of it, your real cause of anxiety is 10 layers down, but you think it's just this little one person causing you anxiety. Then you have to dig in. That That's a whole process of itself and until you're, until you're fully free, something like that. What's their social and economic background? So social in terms of the clients uh, that I take on? Yeah. So right now it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, uh, very much leaning towards teenagers. I'm getting in at the moment. So teenagers is, is a huge, huge growing market in, in the UK. Uh, wow. uh, the stresses that they, they encounter, the way they bring it home, then the parents get alert. Parents will ring someone like me because the, the teenager is not going to contact me directly. And if they go through common support structures that are out in the UK, they struggle to get the help that they need, and uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people are suffering in silence, essentially. So, uh, picking them out, finding out what's wrong, staying in their room too much, being on social media too heavily, uh, in terms of educational uh, stress, and then when life does hit them with a situation, they go way too low to even self-sustain a solution for them. So that's where that's where I've been kicking in uh, heavily. And uh, there used to be that uh, statement, the richer you are, the more problems you have, that type of thing. But then uh, it's become a lot more of a level playing field these days. Uh, everyone's everyone's looking at the same things on social media. So therefore, they, they're they being molded into the same, more more similar personalities, more similar type of thought processes. Dafshin, um did I pronounce that correct? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, that's fine. We're almost at a time. If you were to sum up... And describe, in your words, the road to good living, to good mental health, and to happiness. What would they be? That makes sense. So everyone's got their own challenge in life. Whether you've made your own challenges or whether you're making making them up as you go or letting life throw life's challenges at you. There's the two types of people. There's the prepared and then there's the one that gets hit by the challenges. Every time you get hit by the challenge, you're knocked off. Uh, if you have a support structure in place, if you have guidance if you have a bit of a trending topic to focus on you'll get by but the prepared individual the prepared one that's going after the bigger challenges and 
really toughening themselves up, learning about their own uh, processes of thinking. That's why I like to promote, essentially. Learn about your mind, think about how you guys, uh, you guys have a style to yourselves. So make sure we know that and we keep building that. Otherwise, if you're not building something, you're kind of uh, kind of waiting for something just to be tested. So all we do, we carry on building it, we put ourselves through a bit of strain, keep building our style of thinking. If I'm a up-out personality, uh, talk openly, that type of thing, really expand on that and build it. The same thing if I'm a sit at home and don't like to talk, in, talk to anyone, but I like to get knowledge in a certain way, etc. I like to face up to these type of challenges. Find out your style and really nurture it. Darshan, thank you. It's uh, great being with you, John. It's uh, I definitely like your style. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Five two nine four six nine nine. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.